Now, tonight is a first, um, I think. Uh, we've decided, um, this all stems back tonight, the design of tonight's uh, evening uh, stems back to a conversation that I had with Dr. Ali uh, in, the, in the foyer of the medical school, uh, of uh, QMC, um, about a year and a half ago. And I was saying that I was planning the program for this year's Medico-Chirurgical Society events. And um, what did he think would work? Because uh, I've always noticed that Wilf is somebody who does things his way. And I always admire people who do things their way, because it means that uh, they're something are trying things out. And he said, the, he said, you know, you can't really beat a good grand round where people talk about cases and you discuss them. And uh, so we said, okay, let's do that. And so I've asked Wilf if he could organize a good grand round. And I give that to you, Wilf, Dr. Wilf Alley. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for coming along this evening, and I'd like to warmly welcome you all. My special thanks to David, obviously, for inviting me to um, organize this grand round. When he first asked me to do it, my thoughts went straight to when I was a medical student at King's College Hospital, and um, it was probably one of the most inspirational um, parts of my education that I've ever had. And patients were often presented by the junior doctor. The consultants would sit on the front row, and they'd uh, go into a very active debate, uh, and we always came away with some good take-home messages. And I hope this evening will emulate what we did at King's. We're very privileged this evening because I work in a, um, in a uh, health center in San Diego. And we have a branch surgery at Hillside where we have a, a large skill mix of professions, including obviously the doctors, but we also have healthcare individuals. We have physiotherapists. And we also are privileged to have our own in-house pharmacist as well. Recently, we've also got F2 doctors, and we've always had a, a good input of medical students from first to fifth-year students. What we've decided to do this evening is give the grand round a slightly different twist, uh, and so that some, every patient that we discuss, you take home a message. And our first presentation will be by Newla Hampson, who will be talking about a case history that she's come across. And hopefully, that'll uh, be for about five minutes. And there'll be a good message to take home after that. And then we've got um, cases to discuss by Dr. Adrian Jones, who needs no introduction. He's a consultant rheumatologist. Uh, and any comments? Uh, will be made by one of the, cons uh, you're all uh, welcome to make your comments on the cases, and obviously you'll put it to the audience as well. Dr. Tristan Jones is one of our F2 doctors who's been an excellent uh, F2 example uh, in our practice, and we've got Rita Carmichael, who is a nutritionist, and Adi Mola, who is a fifth-year medical student, uh, and I will give you a summary at the end of the case histories. And we're finally, but last but not least, we're privileged to have Amajit Gill um, talking about the future of dentistry because I think dentists often get ignored in some of these grand rounds. I think we think the body consists of everything apart from the teeth. 
So uh, we are really privileged to have President-elect from the British Dental Association. So I'd like to introduce um, Mueller for a first case, please. Okay, can everyone hear me? Yes. Uh, my name's Nula Hansen. I'm a practice pharmacist at Adam House Surgery. And there it is, it's slightly blurry. Um, Dr. Ali asked me to present a case tonight that illustrates the unique role of the pharmacist in the primary care team. Um, I thought, first of all, I'd tell you just what my role is, because many of you may not be aware of what a practice pharmacist actually does. Um, my personal background is originally in hospital pharmacy. Um, the last 10 years or so, I've worked in primary care, initially for um, primary care groups and trusts, and I'm employed by the surgery two days a week. My routine tasks include reviewing discharge forms and updating the medication from them. So every week we have 10 to 30 discharge forms, um, and I'll just deal with those and deal with any issues. Um, I screen all the prescription requests that we get from our residential and nursing homes, because they are obviously lots of patients with polypharmacy. Um, I undertake clinical medication reviews in the surgery um, for patients who are on repeat medication, and I also visit patients in their own home and in nursing and residential homes to do medication reviews. Um, I'm also an independent prescriber, so in my clinics I do see patients with hypertension and asthma and occasionally prescribe for them. I do retain a little bit of my PCT role and I do prescribing advice on new drugs, guidelines, policies, things that are coming out from the PCT and NICE. Um, I've helped the, the surgery set up systems um, so we can achieve our targets on QOF, the Quality Outcomes Framework, um, just to make sure we've got systems in place to deal with all our chronic disease patients train the staff on repeat prescriptions, and really any drug-related queries tend to come my way. So I'm kept quite busy on my two days a week. The case I want to present to you today I came across um, through reviewing discharge forms. Um, this kind of became a pharmacist stroke pharmacy technician job um, because the PCT ran a pilot. Um, what the PCT found was that discharge forms were not dealt with very well in primary care. Um, they were either seen by GPs, which took up a lot of their time, um, or they weren't seen at all, and therefore when the patient came in to request a new medication, there was a huge kerfuffle. Um, or in some surgeries, they were actually dealt with by reception staff, which again caused problems because they weren't necessarily trained to spot um, different medication. If a patient went in on one beta blocker and came out on a different one, they might end up on both. So the aim was basically to reduce medication errors um, and misunderstandings, really, following the transition from secondary care back into primary care. How we do it at our surgery is the discharge forms go originally to the GP, they look at them briefly, deal with anything urgently that they need to, and then they come along to me, um, and I update the medication, resolve any queries, and just make sure the patient is aware if there's a lot of complicated changes. Um, there's lots of interventions that I have every single day on these. Um, there's lots of duplication that can potentially occur if a patient goes into a hospital, particularly because we are on a border. Um, our practice is in Sandiacre, which is in Derbyshire County PCT, but the majority of our patients come here, which is obviously in Nottingham PCT, and formularies are different, um, and drugs will get switched in hospital, and there's a risk of the patients not understanding those changes. Um, I just ensure anything that's been discontinued is, is removed from repeat. If there's any drug interactions, I'll address those and just make sure everything's up to date so the patient's aware of what's going on so there's, there's hopefully no problems. So the case, the very brief case I want to present today, um, it's actually one that came up a couple of years ago, so the details are a little bit sketchy, but it was one that really stuck in my head because it was such an unusual one. Um, so I thought I'd present it today. Um, it was a 64-year-old lady. She was admitted for elective surgery. 
Um, there didn't really seem to be anything amiss in her discharge form. Her discharge medications were the same as on admission, except for a couple of post-op things. So on her repeat medication screen, she had methanamic acid, 500 milligrams TDS for pain. She had levothyroxine. On her acute medication, she had uh, nitrofurantone, which she'd had uh, recently. And her discharge medication uh, was similar, so there was no kind of real difference between the two of those. So you might just think, okay, nothing to do there, just stamp it and file it. But being a pharmacist, I had to ask more questions, and I thought methanamic acid, that's kind of odd in a 64-year-old lady. Normally you see that prescribed in, in younger women for menorrhagia. Normally they will take it for four to five days of the cycle and, and then not for the rest of the cycle. So it was just odd and made me kind of stop and think. Um, and then also the nitrofurantone. When I looked at the past drugs, this lady had had several courses of antibiotics for UTI over the previous year or two. So I thought I'd look a bit further into the methanamic acid to see why she was on it. Firstly, I looked back at her notes um, to see if there was any reason. And it just appeared that she'd been prescribed it years ago for pain and had kind of been on it ever since. It had been repeated and repeated, although she did seem to be using it more regularly off late. Um, so I had a look in the BNF. It didn't tell me anything more than I already knew. So I thought I'd look a bit further into the data sheet, which you can now look at online, which is really handy. Um, it didn't tell me anything more about the indication, but I did notice that adverse effects included dysuria and hematuria, which made me think of the nitrofurantone again. So I went a little bit further again, and I looked at the MHRA website. Now, on here, you can very easily access the yellow card reports um, and see for any drug, you know, how many yellow card reports there have been and, and what they're for. Um, Methanamic acid has obviously been around for a really long time, and there's been over 3,000 reported adverse reactions, um, over 200 of which are renal and urinary disorders, um, 12 of which were dysuria and 5 of which are hematuria. So this is a pretty rare uh, reaction to methanamic acid. So, <clears throat> uh, basically what I decided to do, I didn't make any changes to that patient's medication at that point. Um, I wrote a quick note to the GP and said, look, not sure why she's on methanamic acid. There doesn't seem to be a really a good reason for it. Um, you might want to be aware that there is a rare side effect of uh, hematuria, dysuria, and this lady does have a history of repeated courses of antibiotics for UTIs. Uh, maybe you want to review her. Um, and to be honest, that was it. I didn't really think any more about it. Uh, the GP actually called the patient in for review. Uh, he changed her methanamic acid to ibuprofen because she was on it for arthritic pain. Um, and six months later, like I say, out of the blue, I got a little letter from this GP thanking me because he'd had this lady in again six months later um, and she'd had absolutely no urinary symptoms and no more courses of UTI, uh, UTI antibiotics. Um, so that was just an interesting one. So really, I think that case kind of just hopefully demonstrates to you the kind of the unique view that a pharmacist in a team will have um, to reviewing patients and to reviewing their medication. Um, a pharmacist will always probably ask more and different questions to any other health professional. Um, and often they'll find out things, a patient will tell them things that they wouldn't necessarily tell um, a doctor. Um, and hopefully if you've got a pharmacist on your team, you've got somebody who can provide you with up-to-date and relevant evidence-based prescribing information. And that's it. Thank you. Adrian Jones, our consultant rheumatologist, uh, and he has a case, a very interesting case. We do have the patient uh, here, Tabussum, 
and she's very kindly agreed to come along. So if there are any questions you'd like to ask her at the end, uh, you're welcome to do so. And also I have to be on my best behavior because she'll tell me off if I get any of this wrong. So some of this was done from notes, but um, patient Mrs. Hussain sat there, so she'll clip me on the ear. She's now 42, and actually we first met the farthest I can go back on the records on the computer is 1998, but it's a long time ago. And when I first met her, she had an established diagnosis of essentially inflammatory knee disease labeled as juvenile arthritis, although clearly she's not uh, juvenile at all. And we used to meet every now and then, and she'd come up and I'd inject her knees, and she seemed to do quite well, and she carried on with the training. And then around about 2003, she went to Pakistan for a prolonged period. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, to live for a while. So, and I thought, oh, well, that's a shame because I hadn't seen her for a while. And then she came back in about 2009 uh, with swollen knees, which I again injected. But one thing she said to me is, actually, I've been feeling very well while I was in Pakistan. Is that correct? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Tests and everything were normal apart from some inflammation. Now, the reason I thought it was interesting is we had a little bit of a chat about why. And does anyone have any thoughts at this stage. So this lady's on no treatment, been feeling well with her arthritis. I say no treatment, we'll come back to that in a minute. Well, the reason being is it rang a few bells because some years ago I saw a lady who was about 50 with rheumatoid who went off to Pakistan, went on a prolonged holiday and came back and said, I feel fantastically better, thank you very much. I don't like your drugs, I've been there, I'm much, much better. And around about the same time, I saw a 35-year-old man with rheumatoid who's white who had a bit of an alternative uh, lifestyle. He um, liked to go to raves and parties. We offered him various drugs for his arthritis. He said, no thanks. And he actually took himself off to Soho where he got himself a Chinese medicine and came back to me and said, I feel fantastic. So I'm hoping by now the penny's dropped as to what's going on here. Absolutely. So, just as an afterthought, um, I did some investigations on Mrs. Hussain, and her random cortisol came back as 28. And, you know, bottom end, of, well, I've got Dr. Chocolingham here who is going to comment, because I don't understand hormones, but 28 is very low. I repeated it two days later, and it was less than 30. Now, for some reason, we've got a random sample from her GP on the system, which is 840, which I don't quite fit into this, because... You can see her ACTH is very suppressed. Her synaptin test goes from 212 to 370, which isn't great. Her adrenal antibodies are negative. We've subsequently found out she's got a low vitamin D and a high PTH, suggesting she's vitamin D deficient, which is perhaps not surprising. And she's just been diagnosed with hypothyroidism, so free prescriptions beckons when we come to give her treatment for her arthritis now, which her sister, who's a, a local GP, has been twisting her arm much more effectively than I can. So this was to a first case to lead on to the whole issue. Now, why did I do the test? Well, we were talking about why she felt so well, and she may want to comment, but when she came back to clinic, she very kindly brought along the medication that she'd been taking whilst abroad. Now, that's it. If anyone knows what it is, I'd be very grateful. I can't get it analyzed. Um, we've tried various people around the place to get it analysed, but this will 
lead on to later discussion. Um, I've talked to pharmacy here, uh, I've talked to chemistry, and although we can analyze patients, we can't analyze drugs terribly easily. So I don't know if anyone's got any questions or comments before we move on to some of the other cases. I can't get anyone who will be able to do it. Um, pharmacy said they can do a bit of a rough and ready um, quality control on it, but chemistry I've spoken to, they say they can't run it. Um, some years ago, one of those patients I mentioned, we did actually manage to get it run off um, in their patient's urine because they wouldn't stop taking the drug, whereas Mrs. Hussain is um, very happy to stop the drug and think about other things. And when we ran it off in the patient's urine, the spectroscopy of the urine showed all sorts of steroid products within the urine. Um, so I've spoken to chemistry here who tell me they don't know unless we send it off privately to an analytical lab. Initially, I, it was mainly, because um, I was very isolated in Pakistan, it was mainly family around me. Um, and herbal medicines is quite um, uh, prevalent in Pakistan. A lot of people you know, take herbal preparations. A lot of my patients want to take something other than conventional medicines. Yeah. And um, there's a huge pressure. If you type in a serious disease into the internet and type an equivalent of help, a whole raft of, e of websites come up. Mm. Um, and I've got a phenomenon in uh, America. There's one clinic in Texas who's been marketing the same agent for 15 years. And it was originally, it's a, an extract, it's a chemical, it's not a drug. And now it's being formally tested. It's taken 15 years. But the people who run it, run the clinic, always are, they, they come to meetings, but they don't seem to be part of the mainstream, but they do keep pressing this drug. Yeah. And of course, it could be that it works, but they but acquired the negative press, and so you don't really know. You have to keep a balanced view on it. Clearly, as, as I've said to some of these other patients, I'd much rather you took steroid that I know what you're taking because I know you won't stop it. Biochemistry is straightforward in that, you know, she's got a, a cortisol less than 30, so that's pretty low and necessitates urgent treatment with steroid replacement. Um, why the ACTH is suppressed and therefore the cortisol is not very clear. These are all plant extracts. I've looked, I looked at the... Um, the menu on the medicine. So often it's the white box with, from the herbalist that raises concerns because there's usually steroids in that and you can usually do a urine screen for that, but I'm not sure whether one can do that with this. But I suspect it's something that's actually mimicking cortisol and suppressing ACTs rather than um, having cortisol extract in this particular um, tonic portion. That's all I can say. I suppose the other point is that she did feel fantastic, so it worked. That's correct, isn't it? You did feel... No, I, I wouldn't say fantastic, but um, relatively well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the next case is uh, presented by Tristan. This is uh, one of our patients who, again, has kindly... Ross has kindly come uh, from uh, San Diego to be present here today with his wife, and if there are any questions at the end of this... Um, presentation. He's more than happy to answer the questions. May I introduce to you Tristan, who will present the next case. So this is Ross down second row at the front. He's 30 years old. Um, I've, I've put as a presenting complaint feeling tired all the time with lethargy and poor sleep. 
he's he's had a long history of of asthma and what have you. Um, so m the majority of what he actually presented to the GP practice with was actually chest infections, um, and he's told me himself that the the tired all the time lethargy thing was always a as I'm walking out the door I'd say oh well, I'm going knackered all the time. Um, so it's been kind of overlooked, I think, a little bit in the past. Um, otherwise, very fit and active. Um, long history of asthma, recurrent chest infections, rhinitis as a child, which has been ongoing. Um, a fairly severe bout of eczema of the feet as he was younger. Um, some fungal infections, Osgood's latters. Um, but nothing major in the notes, particularly. He's never been admitted to hospital for his asthma. Um, I suppose we're going all the way back to 1987 when he was just over eight and a half. His mother, I think, brought him in. Um, concerned about his height, um, at which point he was in the 10th centile for height, although 50th centile for weight. Um, and I think at that point, the GPs were considering growth hormone, but didn't go down that route in the end. Um, now, his drug history is kind of more relevant in this case. Um, for his rhinitis and his hay fever, he's been on a fair raft of things. Um, although from 91 onwards, he tells me that beconase was the most prominently used thing. He has used betanosol nasal drops in the more recent past, um, as he was seen by ENT. Uh, and I suppose of note, particularly the beconase being the most prominent one, he, although it's supposed to be two puffs twice a day into each nostril, he tells me that when he was younger, he was pretty much using it as, as if it was going out of fashion. So pumping it in lots and lots. Um, his asthma, as I say, he's never had any prednisolone for his asthma, per se. Um, though he's recently, again, in the last couple of years, started on serotide, which is fluticasone. Um, chest infections, sorry, he's had prednisolone once for a chest infection. Every other time it's been antibiotics. Going back through his notes, chest infections are, we're counting 30 plus over the last 20 odd years. So a fair few of those. Um, from oh, 81, I can't remember how old he was then, 11-ish, I think. No, but younger than that. Ross? Two. Oh, okay. I was, I was after that in that case. Sorry. Um, but he had about 11 years of very bad eczema with his feet to the point that um, he tells me that the, the, there were deep cracks in his feet and they were almost, you know, he couldn't walk on them at times. Um, and he's had cellulitis in his feet and over the years been treated with Again, a raft of things, fusothalmic, hydrocortisone, aqueous creams, betanovate at one point, which lasted for a long time. And, and, it, and he has said that over the years, he's, he's had, had his feet swimming in some of these steroids as well. Ear infections on a relatively frequent basis as well, particularly when he was younger. Um, and again, has had penicillins, canison creams, hydrocortisone, sofridex. Now, this was fairly recently, um, and it wasn't after a holiday, and it wasn't after sunbathing. Um, I can't remember how long ago it was, Ross. A couple of years. Um, but sorry, that's just the photo that I've... And it, and it does look like that on his badge from work as well, so it's not, a, it's not the screen that's making it show up in the wrong colour. Now, he, he didn't really... As I say, he didn't really present to the GPs with this... this tired all the time sort of feeling. He went to see um, the dietitian, and she did a salivary cortisol test as one of the raft of tests that she did. And he came to see the GP with this result, which shows a low salivary cortisol reading, 
which I'm told we don't take much notice of in the medical business. Because um, I, I had no idea, to be perfectly fair. Um, but on the basis of this, we went on to do a random cortisol, um, which showed... Oh, it's not on there. It showed a, r a level of 35, which is very much on the low side. Um, and then, having had that result, we sent them in to the endocrinologists, and they did a short, short synaclin test, which confirmed Addison's disease. I couldn't find anywhere in his records a lying standing blood pressure, but whenever it's been taken in the practice, it's always been about 110 over 70, 120 over 80. Um, and this was his BP a couple of days ago. Now he's on the right treatment. Um, so 130 over 80 standing, 120 over 80 lying. So that's nice and well controlled. Normally I think of Addison's disease as if there's been a destructive process to the adrenal glands, but chronic steroid use can turn your, steroid, your adrenal glands off permanently, can they? It's got adrenal insufficiency. His ACTH is low. Um, if it's primary hyperadrenalism, then his ACTH would be high. Uh, his ACTH was in the order of about, well, it was eight. Uh, he had a normal, um, he had a normal, um, he had normal antibodies, uh, so it, it's not an autoimmune uh, phenomena, and he had a normal palate of thyroid function, testosterone, because if you just see a low cortisol, it could fit in with hyperpituitarism, but with him having a normal palate of thyroid function, testosterone, uh, and he had a normal prolactin as well, it fits in with secondary uh, hypoadrenalism. Now, Ross was started on replacement of hydrocortisone, uh, and he also had fludrocortisone because he became quite, his blood pressure dropped quite dramatically to uh, 90 over 60, and he felt very, very tired. And he's a very well-read individual who um, researches the internet and researches the papers. And he uh, then came back to us to ask us whether he should be increasing his fludrocortisone, and indeed he did. Uh, he's also a very active sportsman, and for this reason, every time he went to the gym, we tried to work out a regime where he'd have 10 hydrocortisone in the morning, uh, 5 before he uh, went to the gym, and then uh, 10 again in the uh, evening. So it was almost tailoring the hydrocortisone to see how he felt. At this stage, he feels a lot better, and what we would do now is to really chip at his hydrocortisone and probably reduces fludrocortisone. When I, was, when I went on the hydrocortisone, I felt great for a couple of weeks, um, and then it, it was better than before I went on, but not as good as those first two weeks. And then after about a month or six weeks, I became really ill. And uh, I've been, I'm probably one of the guys we referred to earlier, researching on the internet and coming out with all sorts of different ideas of what's wrong with me. But uh, I, I started monitor, monitoring my own blood pressure and noticed that it was really low. Um, and it just so happened I was in to see Dr. Ali at the clinic, um, and we decided to inc increase my fludrocortisone from 50 to 100 micrograms, I think it is. And that almost overnight stopped all the physical symptoms. Um, I, I had the shakes, uh, all my joints were aching, chronic fatigue, I couldn't see properly, like blurred vision almost, um, and memory loss were, were the symptoms. But almost overnight, as soon as we doubled the fludrocortisone, it seemed to have an impact on it. Um, and because of how bad I was, I was actually taking 50 milligrams of um, hydrocortisone 
because I'd read that obviously if you're going into like a crisis, which I was that bad, I believed I was, I doubled the hydrocortisone I was taking and, and that was and on that double, double dose, I still only had a resting blood pressure of 60 or down to 55. Does that help? <laughs> I mean, I suppose the reason for showing the picture was, you know, he's probably got Addison's rather than secondary adrenal suppression. That's um, probably the diagnosis, which is why you felt better on the fluorocortisone. Um, the ACT, I mean, obviously one of the things that um, people felt that this is secondary is because the ACTH was low. Um, the thing to bear, about AC, bear in mind about ACTH assay is that it needs to be done in hospital. It has to be spun down straight away and frozen straight away. And if that pathway isn't followed, you will get uh, abnormal, you know, wrong results and therefore wrong conclusions. So that's probably the comment on the ACTH. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Rita Carmichael. Um, I'm not a dietitian. I'm a nutritional therapist, and I work in private practice. And um, I'm based at the Castle Clinic on the Rope Walk. And um, I've been asked tonight to talk about why I did this uh, cortisol test and how I arrived at the decision to do that and the kind of symptoms that Ross presented with when he came to see me earlier this year. Um, and I understand that the, the salivary cortisol test isn't used in, in... Does anybody use it? Is it normally serum testing that you do? No? Okay, so I'll, I'll explain why I did that and a little bit about the test. So when Ross first came to see me, it's, um, I think it was around January time, um, he filled in a, a health questionnaire, which I ask everyone to do, and also kept a food diary so that um, I can get a good idea of, of um, his, his medical history and um, how his diet might be affecting his health. And these are some of the conditions he came with. So um, as um, was mentioned before, as Dr. Jones said, he, Ross mentioned one of the main things is that he's very tired a lot of the time. He's finding it difficult to get out of bed in the morning, had a real slump in the afternoon wasn't concentrating very well at work, and he wasn't sleeping well either. Um, he had a lot of digestive symptoms, including bloating and excess wind. He was very thirsty all the time. He was getting lots of colds. And, of course, we know about the asthma and, and the hay fever, which had been going on a long time. Um, one thing that um, did stand out was he told me he'd had glandular fever um, as a teenager. That's right. Oh, he'd been tested. But it showed, it showed no, no, beg your pardon. Um, but you had been tested for it. So was that as a result of having a virus? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and of course, was the history of steroid use. Um, he was very sensitive to alcohol and other stimulants as well. Um, and, and all these signs alerted me to the fact that it, it was likely to, that, that his, adre his, his adrenals were, 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 were functioning under par. And so this, is just, this isn't exactly all the things we did with Ross, but for just very briefly, as a nutritional therapist, I'm very interested in the relationship with what somebody's eating and their health. So um, for the adrenals, a, a good diet is absolutely essential to, to keep them healthy and to, re, to rebuild the adrenals. So you want adequate, wholesome food with, with plenty of protein, 
um, regular meals, avoiding processed foods, reducing or avoiding stimulants. And Ross had been exercising quite heavily, so we had to negotiate reducing that a little bit. Um, so gentle exercise is good, but not, not overdoing it. So that's all putting a toll on the adrenal glands. Relaxation is very important as well. And there are, there's a variety of nutritional supplements you can get to, to support the adrenal glands. Um, anything from um, glandular-type material with the hormones re removed to, um, to adaptogenic herbs as well. And I was also um, prompted by this to test Ross's adrenal glands. And I use um, a salivary cortisol test, and I'll, I'll go through... After we've been through the results here, I'll tell you why and um, what I think the advantages of that are. And I'll also support that with some, um, some, some uh, um, references from the literature. So the green area um, on the right, as you look at it, is the, where the cortisol would be ideally. So it's high in the morning, so you have the ability to get out of bed and get on with your day and have plenty of energy. And then it coasts down very nicely towards the end of the day when your cortisol levels are low. And that, that, that means you'll get um, a good night's sleep. And the reference ranges are all on the right-hand side. In the right-hand box, the reference ranges are there, which for sample one is 12 to 22. Rosser's is actually 1.3, and that was the 8 a.m. sample. Then sample two was uh, around about lunchtime, which was one, and the reference range is between five and nine. Um, three, sample three in the afternoon, 0 0.4, which the reference range is between three and seven, and then at midnight, 0 0.5. So that's showing um, very tired, under-functioning adrenal glands. And this would be a situation where someone's had a lot of stress on their adrenals over a number of years. It does take time to get to into that situation. And the total daily cortisol, which is over on the left in the, in the, in the top, um, top left box, was 3.2. And the range is between 21 and 41. So armed with this information, uh, Ross went to, to see Dr. Jones and Dr. Ali, and he, it was then that, that, that he was diagnosed with, uh, with Addison's disease. Diagnosis is not something I, do, I would do. I'm not medically trained, um, but I can look for signs and, signs and symptoms and then refer people, if necessary, refer people on to their doctor. And some of the, so some of the advantages of salivary cortisol testing, um, this test actually tests the free cortisol, which is a bio, biologically active form. Um, the serum test is looking at total cortisol, but the large part of that is, is, tied up, is bound to cortisol-binding globulin. And it is the, um, the free cortisol that is the biologically active one. And it measures levels of cortisol throughout the day because, after all, uh, cortisol has a natural rhythm to it where it's high in the morning and coasts down towards the evening. So you're looking at the circadian rhythm and it gives better treatment options because you can actually pinpoint what's happening during the day and at what time during the day and where the cortisol levels are. And this test also provides a cortisol, which you may have noticed, provides a cortisol DHEA ratio. 
And from your from the patient's point of view, I think it's probably um, a lot easier to do. It's it, it's non invasive. It you don't have to. Lots of people are frightened of. of um, having blood taken. In fact, having blood taken in itself is quite stressful, so that could bump your cortisol levels up. And so, and, and, and it can be taken wherever you are. All you have to do is spit into a tiny little tube four times a day. People can do it at work or if they've, if they've got a day off, so it's, it's not difficult. Um, and uh, an American doctor colleague tells me that it's, actually, it's uh, covered by Plan B on Medicare, and he also tells me um, anything approved by Medicare has to go through quite rigorous procedures to be approved because they don't want to pay for anything that they don't have to. And it's also approved by the World Health Organization for accurate testing of cortisol. So if you go and do a search on PubMed, you will come up with um, a number of, uh, well, quite a lot of references. So I've just homed in on two or three uh, and I've highlighted at the bottom the conclusions, which, of course, you can read for yourselves. But this particular one is from Clinical Endocrinology in 2005 um, with the title Salivary Cortisol Determined by immune, Enzyme Immunoassay is Preferable to Serum Total Cortisol for Assessment of Dynamic HPA Axis Activity. And if anyone wants any of these references, you know, just, just let me know. I can let you have them. This one, um, get, so, so, you know, the, the researchers go back some years. This is going back to 1983. Um, and this is salivary cortisol, a better measure of adrenal cortical function than serum cortisol. And that summarizes it quite nicely, I think. These data, combined with a simple stress-free non-invasive collection procedure, lead us to suggest that salivary cortisol is a more appropriate measure for the clinical assessment of adrenocortical function than is serum cortisol. Some of you may argue with that. So just to summarize, um, just to summarize what I've said, that it's a simple non-invasive test that is used widely um, to assess cortisol levels throughout the day in, to help to offer, to offer better treatment options. And I do say it's used widely. Um, it's certainly used a lot in, in the US. And the, the lab that I use is, is um, an American lab called Genova Diagnostics, although there are others who do it. But they, they just happen to have um, a base in, in this country. So you send the, the, the samples off to um, Surrey and, and the results are back within, well, it's, it's normally less than a week. And I think the important bit, um, if, you're, if you're asking, well, why would I use that, is the, it measures the active free fraction of cortisol, and there, is, there are plenty of uh, papers to support that. I've, just, I've only just shown you a couple of them. So um, my number's there. If anybody, uh, my, my email address, if anybody wants to, has any questions after tonight or wants any, any more information, you know, please do get in touch. And once again, thanks very much for inviting me. Well, thank you very much, Rita. I'd like to ask Camel, actually, uh, because there is obviously, there's been some studies, I know at the Christie recently, with comparing saliva cortisol with uh, plasma cortisol. I wonder if you can get on that. Um, I got interested in salivary cortisol because I saw a paper 
um, a year ago. Um, it is more for testing patients with suspected Cushing's steroid excess. It may have a small drool. Um, I had a discussion with our consultant chemical pathologist this morning about it. Um, the first thing to say is salivary cortisol. The, the limitations are that um, it's an immunoassay paper that you coated, and it doesn't differentiate between cortisol and cortisone, which is an inactive form. So therefore, you could get artificially low results, and because it's an immunoassay. Um, now, it's been up and down for the last 10, 15 years, and there are difficulties with the assay, and that's why I think people are moving on to chromatography. And there has been a paper published from um, the group in Christie's in Manchester. And again, they're using it mainly for suspected Cushing's. So as a tool for screening uh, Cushing's, may have a role, but probably not for adrenal insufficiency for that specific reason. I mean, that's the key issue, really, about salivary cortisol in that it's not well validated. Um, if we were to do it, then it has to go off to a reference laboratory as if we were to do it in mainstream medical practice. Um, the difficulty I have is because this particular lab is perhaps not within the pathology network where it could be then subjected to the same standards as most other assays are subjected to um, that we carry out. And that is a comment um, that I need to make. Um, I don't know if anybody else wants to make a comment before I go on about it. That's right. It's mainly their samples taken by the saliva, yeah. uh, rather than by the needle. Correct. And so uh, we do use uh, salivary levels for drugs, and uh, and so uh, the saliva is not the problem. It's the specificity. That's right. Yes. But as a screening tool, it's actually it has some value because she does say that she refers to a doctor for proper for the full diagnosis because she's not a diagnostician. So I think that's a, a safe screening tool. That's correct. As long as it. Yeah, at the moment it's used and it has been used in pediatric practice is what uh, my colleague says and it has a role for the needle phobic children uh, but perhaps for the adults um, there are things to be there are in you know there are questions to be answered before we can use it um, as a standard practice uh, as a routine thank you well we'll move on now thank you very much Carmel, for your comments and thank you Rita uh, Adi is just going to summarize the signs and symptoms of Addison's before we move on. Okay, good evening. Um, I'm just briefly going to talk about adrenal insufficiency. Just going to go over the common causes and some of the common clinical features. Um, in a normal situation, the adrenal glands produce cortisol and aldosterone. Cortisol is important in the stress response. So, for example, in surgical patients and also in patients with nutritional deficiency and intercurrent illnesses. Allosterone is important for um, sodium retention and therefore water retention. Um, in adrenal insufficiency, there's obviously inadequate secretion of both of these um, hormones. Uh, so we're just going to. So what actually causes these um, deficiencies in secretion? Well, the causes can either be primary or secondary. Um, in the primary causes, the problem is with the adrenal gland itself. So in in this country, the main cause is autoimmune adrenalitis, which occurs in about 70% of patients with Addison's. In certain parts of the world, TB is becoming a, an, important an important cause of primary adrenal insufficiency. 
and also HIV AIDS and some of the medications to treat HIV AIDS can cause adrenal insufficiency. In terms of secondary causes, which, are causes, which is when the HPA axis is suppressed, um, you can the main cause is iatrogenic um, steroids. And steroids are used across the, across the board, rheumatology, respiratory, dermatology, GI, um, transplant patients. So a lot of patients fall into, into that category, and it's just something um, that we need to be aware of. Some of the common features, tiredness, um, lethargy, arthralgia, abdominal pain, they're quite nonspecific. So um, adrenal insufficiency, insufficiency can be misdiagnosed as maybe a viral illness, depression, chronic fatigue syndrome. So it's just, you need to have a high index of suspicion. Patients can also present with postural hypertension, dizziness, because of the aldosterone insufficiency and sodium, sodium loss. In patients with, prim with primary insufficiency, they can also have pigmentation of the buccal mucosa or of the palmar folds. And this is because of the increased ACTH that, that cross-reacts with melanin receptors. Uh, just at, at the bottom, I've put acute adrenal crisis. And this is something which is it's a life-threatening um, condition. And it's, um, if, a, if, for example, you have a post-op post patient who's acutely, profoundly hypertensive, very tachycardic, they're not responding to a fluid challenge, maybe you should be thinking of, um, of giving them hydrocortisone because they may have an undiagnosed adrenal insufficiency. And the new sepsis guidelines have actually put this into place. So if there's a patient with um, profound shock, then they should get 100 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone. Some of the less common um, causes, uh, like iatrogenic still, so um, adrenalectomy, carcinomas, um, and the list goes on. So, but the take-home message is that, um, it says this in the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine, that adrenal insufficiency is an unforgiving master of non-specificity and disguise. So you just need to have an um, uh, index of suspicion, otherwise you'll never diagnose it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chaddy, for summarizing that. Thank you. I thought I'd give you a quick two-minute uh, summary of uh, Hakim's, because I know we've been talking about herbalists. And in fact, these Hakim's, it's an Arabic word for wise men. They're quite extensively practicing in parts of India and Pakistan. And some of the Hakim's, in fact, the minority are licensed. Uh, and there used to be a school called Hamdard in Lahore, where they're qualified from. But uh, some of the guys have sort of set up by osmosis, have learned a few tricks of the trade, and they set up individually. Now, it's Hakim's classically, you know, in the, in the real sense of the Hakim, he is, practices a Yunani system of medicine, which is a concept. Uh, Yunani is, from, uh, is an Arabic word for Greek, and uh, it's really a, a Galenic system of medicine which they practice and often has some um, Islamic cultural beliefs in their practice. I think um, it's 
the first bit of research was done by late Mohammed um, Aslam at the Department of Pharmacy with Bob Davis, who was a professor at that time. Uh, and he did quite a lot of extensive work in the 1980s on this. In fact, he wrote his PhD on it. And he found that even in the United Kingdom, in places like Bradford and Birmingham, these Hakims were setting their practices up. And in fact, even advertising in the local newspapers that they'd come on holiday and they'd probably advertise in, their, uh, in, in the local papers. I think with the increased immigration, not only have people brought their culture but, and their religion from different parts of the world, but they've also brought along their medicines. On the left, this is a picture of a Hakim advertising. Uh, he's come over from Delhi, and he's advertising prior to coming over in, in the local newspaper that he'll be visiting Bradford. And uh, he normally collects his patients prior to coming, and he'll often do the damage and go away. Uh, and I think the key, the reason why I've put this on is with GPs now doing near patient testing um, with warfarin, uh, they could, a lot of patients, A, we don't ask in primary care, are you on any other medicines? Are you taking any alternative systems of medicine? Uh, and I think it's important for uh, us to really be aware and ask these questions. On the right, um, when I was a, an SHO at the Children's Hospital, we did some work on imported cosmetics, and we found that the Surma that the children were putting on, as in this slide here, just again, these were ornamental pots right at the top, kept on the mantelpiece, and there's a mother, I don't know how clear you can see it, trying to put it in the child's eye. And the lead would, with the child crying would go via the laser, nasal lac lacrimal duct, end up in the mouth, and the more you put in, which the mother thought the, the sermon was supposed to make the eyes look better and bigger and healthy, so they'd put it in at every nappy change. Uh, and we found that these children had higher lead levels than uh, the normal individual. So the take-home message is, please check the drug history. I think that is the main message. And for any ethnic group, or mainly ethnic groups, you should really be alerted to, are you taking any alternative medicine from one of the visiting Hakims or herbal medicines that you've acquired from abroad? I put this slide up, really. If we hear the uh, sound of hoofs, we should really still think of horses, but occasionally, uh, if we fail, we should think of zebras as well. I think uh, very interesting the, across these four, three, four cases is the fact that the par patient is driving the agenda. And uh, that's just one thing I feel you've really caught, got across tonight, that the patient is driving the agenda. And we in the profession uh, are in danger of losing our role if we don't recognize that. Just to thank you all for coming this evening, and thank you very much. I think that's been very interesting. I'd like to ask um, Tony Marsh if he'd just like to say a few words in conclusion. Thank you. Thank you. D David asked me yesterday um, if I'd uh, uh, propose some thanks tonight. 
uh, and told me that Wilf was going to be here. It took me back to a, a winter's night in the winter of 79-80 when I went on a, um, uh, to a meal at a restaurant with the firm that I was about to join the following day. It's memorable for two things. One, I managed to spill my beer all over Rob Tussle's shirt, who was going to be my boss the next day. And the second memorable thing was that Wilf did the most amazing stand-up comedy act. So I knew tonight was going to be entertaining. <coughs> but it's been especially informative uh, and educational. Uh, again, just completely out of the blue today, I've done a visit on a, uh, an old couple... Uh, the gentleman is chronically anxious, and he, the story was that he walks down the corridor and then he goes all funny and collapses to the ground, never hurts himself. Uh, there was a lot of work being done in the complex, so it was perfectly obvious it was an anxiety state. I got him up and I said, I'll, you know, I'll show him. Took him down a few yards. He said, start to feel dizzy, and I did his blood pressure. I could not find his blood pressure. He had no blood pressure at all when he was standing out. Whether he's going to turn out of Addison's, I don't know. But uh, um, but thank you for reminding us it because it's absolutely tired. It's never the wrong time to be reminded of the zebras because uh, we will see them every now and then. I think the other thing that's been demonstrated absolutely perfectly is the value of the wider team in dealing with people. Um, the fact the fact that having a practice pharmacist in the team. Uh, uh, has dramatically changed at least one person's life, and I'm sure lots of others. Uh, as, as GPs, we, we have traditionally been very isolated, and I think we are now moving much more into working in a team, and I'm sure that this is happening in the hospital as well. I'm, uh, the, the, the final thing, which is obviously very important, is just how innovative Wilf has been in setting up this uh, process. Um, I, I, I had no idea what I was going to be coming to tonight, and I, I found it extremely valuable, and, and I'm sure we can spread the word and get more people to do. So I, I want to uh, thank Will for that, but, uh, but also I want to thank everybody else who's taken part, the, the, the patients who've come, and everybody who, who, who's uh, contributed their bit. Um, and and uh, it has been a fantastic example of teamwork. Especially enjoyed hearing about the future of dentistry because we're just about to enter our flatline phase. And the only way we're going to survive that is by uh, working in different ways. And the major different way is probably going to have to be coordination and cooperation between us. And I'm so pleased uh, to see secondary primary care clinicians doing this. So thank you very much, Wilf. Thank you very much for everybody else who's come. Uh, thank you for organizing it. Great. Well, I think no more ado. I'll invite you to take some refreshments outside, and if you wish to make a contribution, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, don't forget that in the 26th, we've got uh, Thomas Pals, who's a professor of uh, physiology uh, from the Body and Brain Center at the university, is going to talk about adolescent brain environment development, which will be a fascinating talk, and I can assure you. Thank you very much.